Leonard Lopate at large, I'm Leonard Lopate. We're assigned a sex, male or female, when we're born, but for many people, gender identity and sex classifications are a lot more complicated than whether they have been labeled F or M. In his new book, Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity, Paisley Curra, who's been working on transgender rights issues since the 90s, examines the politics of sex classification in the U.S. and explores our current deeply flawed system, revealing why it fails to uh, transgender people and non-binary people. It's published by New York University Press and brings Professor Curra to our show now. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm so glad to be here. Transgender is an umbrella term for people whose gender identity, gender expression, or behavior doesn't conform to the typically uh, to that that's typically associated with the sex to which they were assigned at birth. Don't the ways we describe our sense of gender identity keep on increasing and changing? Recently, X was added to M and F, and they is often substituted for him or her. Yes, absolutely. There's just lots of ways of of moving away from the expectations people have given, you know, your birth sex. So transgender, it is this umbrella term to describe people who in one way or another move away from their birth sex, whether that's like being a binary transgender person, like transitioning from one gender to another, or just or being non-binary or gender non-conforming in, in one way or another. So it is, is constantly uh, expanding and proliferating. And then there are other words, uh, like transsexual. It can get a bit confusing to people who aren't affected. Yeah, so trans- transsexual is a word. It was it was coined by uh, folks who were uh, medical professionals um, to describe people whose gender identity was different than the science sex at birth. And a lot of trans um, people don't like that term so much now because um, – because it seems because it refers to uh, uh, it was a way to pathologize trans people. So um, so a lot of folks don't use that term. Some still do. I, I was using that term when I was teaching a class a couple of years ago, just in a historical sense. And my students got mad at me. So I have well, to be careful myself. Well, the T in LGBTQ stands for transsexual, doesn't it? Uh, or is no, it, it also- actually kind of it stands for trans or transgender now these uh-huh. days. Aren't some people uncomfortable defining themselves as being a member of one of these categories? Yeah, I mean, whenever whenever you have any kind of system of categorizing people, there are some people who aren't going to fit uh, and are going to feel like there's a certain violence done to them by having a box they have to fit into. And for, for a lot of trans people, that was having to fit into the assigned sex at birth. Um, and now it becomes even more broad, like, any any one term that tries to group a group of people together might not accurately describe any one individual. So that's definitely an ongoing problem. You write a lot in this book about the role of government. Where does government come into the story? Don't a wide range of government agencies like Homeland Security to, to departments of motor vehicles have the authority to make their own rules for sex classification? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a really interesting thing. Like a lot of people, especially people who... Uh, are transgender think that you just have a legal sex. Um, but for transgender people, you soon realize that actually every agency has its own rules and procedures for changing your sex classification. I mean, a handful don't let you change it at all, but mostly people do now, but they have different rules. So some people be able to change their sex at one agency and not at another. Um, a survey was about, done about seven years ago found that only about, is a survey of transgender people, found only about 10% had reported that they changed all their identity documents. And a third of people said um, 
said they had been verbally harassed or denied benefits or asked to leave or even assaulted when they showed an ID that didn't match their appearance. The way you pronounce about uh, reveals <laughs> there that you you're go. a transplant <laughs> from <laughs> <That's> Canada. <right. laughs> I've been caught out. I've been down. I've been down here for like thirty years, but I can't. I don't want to. I still have my going about and about. Yes. And, and are the are the problems uh, the same in Canada as they are here? Um, it's a little well. Canada's a different country politically. You know, um, I was listening to a talk. I was up in Canada visiting relatives. I was listening to a talk radio, and some it was like a right wing show because, of course, my dad is listening to that. And they're calling in saying, "I don't like all this big government. All people should have is like housing, healthcare, and you know, education and food. Other than that, no, no, none of this big government. And like that's a very that's the right wing in Canada. So, so in Canada, it's a little bit more. Um, there are better decisions. And there are also, you know, less jurisdictions. So what happens in the United States is that we have like the federal government and then 50 states and a handful of territories. So we have many more jurisdictions and agencies making up uh, rules for sex classification. And that becomes the real problem in the United States. So how much has that affected you as someone who's transgender? You, you write about going to the DMV in New York State with a letter from a doctor that said that you'd had all the treatment you needed. But that wasn't enough to satisfy the woman at the DMV? Well, the thing is, at the DMV, um, when I went, the, per the people at the DMV were, were perfectly nice and pleasant. And I tell that story in the book to just talk about, like, what happens when transgender people appear on the social map and appear in an, an office or a government benefits agency or a DMV is that there could often just be this total confusion or like people who are have their like forget what they know about their jobs. So the New York state policy at the time it's changed now, but the time I changed my driver's license, you had to have a letter from a, a doctor saying you'd changed, you know, you'd had all the treatment you needed. From um, a physician. From a physician, right. And then I had a letter from a surgeon. And so the person at the front desk was very nice, but she's like, I don't think a physician, this is, it says it has to be from a physician, not a surgeon. Isn't and, a know, surgeon it, a physician? I know. You'd think so, especially since surgeons occupy a pretty high up role in the medical hierarchy. But so she checked with her supervisor who checked with her supervisor. And so it took like half an hour for them to sort out that, yes, a surgeon was a physician. But they weren't being mean. They were just like the whole thing was confusing to them. And and so that's what that happens to a lot of uh, trans people uh, when they try to change their documents. Was that a unique experience for you or have you had other similar experiences over the years? Because uh, your history goes back quite a while. Yeah, I'm 58, so it does go back quite a while. Um, well, I found, um, you know, I moved through the world with a lot of privilege. So I, you know, I teach at CUNY. I'm a college professor. I have tenure. I'm white. I transition from female to male. And I, you know, transition medically. So I kind of look like a cisgender person who's, you know, I'm, now I'm balding. You look quite male. In fact, you're, you're going a bit bald. Which, exactly. Less hair than I do. <laughs> there you go. I know. So I'm balding in a beard. So I moved to the world with a lot of, a lot of um, privilege. So I even and even I sometimes, you know, have had problems. Mostly I'm really good. It's just like it's like any kind of bureaucratic task. Can you get a PDF of this document? Can you get something notarized? Can you get a surgeon to write or a doctor to write the letter you need to, to have them written? And I, I'm relatively good at those kind of tasks. And even I kind of had a lot of problems um, just in terms of always getting all my documents together and and finding the right the right procedure and the right policies. Uh, in New York, it's got a lot better though because they've, you know, last they passed this gender recognition bill, 
last year mm-hmm. uh, that makes it very easy to change your birth certificate in New York State and uh, to change your driver's license. And then New York City, for some odd historical reason, is its own jurisdiction for handing out birth certificates. And they changed their policy a bunch of times. But the current policy is like if you're born in the city, just go in and, and change it or send in a form checking off M or F or X. But it hasn't been that. It wasn't always that way. That's for sure. And you say that the more you delved into it, the more you realize that a lot of the obstacles for trans people changing their gender identity and documents were accidental byproducts of the sex classification system in itself. Right, because I was coming into it because I had been, you know, working as an activist, even as I was a college professor and working on New York state legislation and, and federal policy. And I just assumed that policies that had bad effects on transgender people were transphobic and that they were meant to harm transgender people. And then when I started kind of researching it and spending some time with some old archives and documents, I realized it's a much more bigger, complicated picture. So, for example, back in the 1960s, New York City was trying to figure out what to do with people who want to change their birth certificates, you know, and they didn't know what to do. And they appointed a committee of doctors. And this committee of doctors wrote to someone in the Federal Department of Health and Education and Welfare, which it was at that time, and said, what do you think? And the federal officials like, wow, that's a head scratcher. Let me just check. So they basically wrote and or convened a meeting of other federal officials. And the federal official said, well, it depends if, if they're trying to get benefits, if they're trying to register for selective service, you know, like people changing their sex is going to kind of impact a lot of what we do. And then I and then I realized uh, that it's not just a matter of transphobia. It's a matter that sex classification, like distinguishing between men and women, is built into the kind of the architecture of government. Uh, uh, so mostly to make sure that men get more stuff than women, though mm-hmm. sometimes not in terms of selective service, registering for the draft. Um, men and that were granted, was a, uh, if, if, with the 14th Amendment, men were granted the vote, but not women. Obviously. Yeah, exactly. So there's all these ways in which the state discriminate against women through the vote, through um, you know the coverture, making having the idea that married women couldn't be independent actors in their own right and their their husbands were there covered them legally there's all these way and and also uh with respect to marriage you know marriage was limited to uh, uh, uh between a man and a woman there's all these ways that sex is sort of built into the government and so when transgender people come along we're running into these these larger systems that were meant to harm women don't many transgender people find themselves with different sex classifications on, on different documents yeah, pro- may- many and possibly most because it's it, it's a hassle to change them all. Like uh, under the Obama administration, um, you know, Obama was not able to accomplish very much legislatively after the Health Care Act was passed. But the Obama administration did a lot to change as, uh, as many regulations as they possibly could. So, for example, they changed the they made it easier for people to change the sex classification on their passport. They made it easier for people to change the sex classification on their Social Security administration. And then, of course, Trump comes along and is you know trying to undo all that. And then Biden comes along and tries to re- redo all that. So it becomes a political football back and forth. But there's just so many different rules and agencies and people who are born in more conservative states. There can be uh, real barriers to changing your your sex classification. Like some jurisdictions require people to have genital surgery. And, you know, a lot of transgender people never had that kind of surgery. So that's an example of a barrier to changing your sex classification. Hasn't, you mentioned Obama, hasn't the Affordable Care Act banned sex discrimination? It includes provisions that interpret sex to include 
gender identity, doesn't it? Yeah. So the Obama administration said, you know, we're not going to you can't discriminate on the basis of sex and the provision of health care services. And we're interpreting sex to include gender identity, transgender status, also sexual orientation, because sexual orientation depends on the sex of the person you're with. Um, and so that was a really important move in the provision of health care. And it kind of meant over time that uh, insurance policies wouldn't discriminate against trans people in um in you know in gender affirming care so that was good the trump administration um was trying to roll it back uh and uh the biden administration is trying to redo redo it and it's right now it's kind of tied up in the courts because administrations can they can say what they think congress meant by the term but ultimately the court gets to decide what congress meant by the term sex so we'll see how that turns out so why do you think there is so much resistance to people changing their sex designation? Well, you know, the thing is, there's there hasn't really been there hasn't really been resistance per se. Well, there's been resistance, but it's becomes like a bureaucratic um, problem related to like whatever the agency does. So, for example, in New York City, when I was working for a long time on trying to get the city to change its birth certificate policy, what they were really worried about was. Uh, making it too easy for trans people to change their their sex classification because they thought if they didn't require surgery, they thought surgery means you're really serious. <laughs> so if they didn't require surgery, then some like, you know, cisgender lesbian would pretend to be a trans man and would marry her cisgender lesbian partner and they would be in a same sex marriage and they would just kind of, you know, gain the system to be classified as an opposite sex marriage. So that was like one example of why they have these why they have these barriers. Um, but another thing I found, I found a real difference in, in, um, in policy between, say, for example, driver's licenses. So. Even right-wing states, even what we call red states, they all kind of changed their policies so people could ch change the sex classification on their driver's license. And, and sometimes they required, you know, more body modification. And some states, like more progressive states, you know, after a while didn't. But you could always change your sex classification on your, your driver's license. And then I found even in those states that let, let that happen, there were all these really terrible appellate decisions around the same time that said a transgender person for the person of, for the purposes of marriage will be defined by the sex they were assigned at birth. So if you had, for example, a transgender man, someone who's assigned female at birth and transitioned, married to a woman, a cisgender woman, um, courts would say, no, that is not uh, same-sex marriage. That's a same-sex marriage and it, it can't be. And so I was like, why could there be why could why would there be differences? Because I thought, okay, there's there's sex. We know what's you know, sex is defined as X, Y, and Z. We can divide over fight over that. And then I realized like different government agencies or different arms of the state define sex differently because they did different things. So DMVs want you to have a driver's license that will identify you. So that could be a form of identification. So when you get pulled over, when I get pulled over by the, the police for a ticket or something. And I hand over a driver's license. It doesn't help them. You know, you, you know, I'm you know, I'm bald. I have a beard. It's not really helpful for them when I hand over a driver's license that says F on it in terms of tracking me as a person. But when it comes to marriage, um, it was a different ball game. So there was all these appellate cases that were pretty bad that that found these. Um, that voided these marriages. And what was at stake was a very different matter. Like often, what was at stake was money. Or inheritance, or um, or even or even child custody. 
So, for example, in Texas, this, uh, a Texas appellate court said, here's this woman. She has changed her birth certificate. She's changed her driver's license, but she uh, she's in a same sex marriage. And therefore, it is um, it is not a real marriage. And that case was interesting because it involved uh, a, a, a malpractice claim. So her husband had died in the hospital. She was suing the hospital and the insurance company lawyers, super smart and evil said, oh, you know what? We don't have to, def- we don't have to defend this malpractice claim. We'll just say she's actually a man. It was a same sex marriage. And then she has no standing to sue. And this Texas court said in kind of Texas language, you know, a surgeon can't change with a scalpel what God created at birth, you know? So, and, but it was because money was involved, but when there's less money involved or less or less or benefits or, or something, some kind of possible monetary good, um, the policies are much more likely to be lax and easier for transgender people. My guest on today's London Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Paisley Curra, C-U-R-R-A-H. His latest book is Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender uh, Identity, published by the University of, uh, is it what, NYU? Yeah, New York uh, University Press. That's right. Now, um, I'm, I'm still a bit confused here. Uh, don't many transgender people find themselves with different sex classifications on different documents? Can trans people change their identity document at one place without that change carrying through to another? Right. Well, that's, that's the interesting problem. So... Um, it depends what the identity document is and what state is, what state issues it. So, for example, there's this really great um, project. It's called the Movement Advancement Project, and uh, you can find it online. And they have like these very helpful maps. I mean, they're for they're for everybody, but transgender people can use them. And it just tells you it just tells you uh, what um, uh, what the rules are for the state. So for example, you know, Arizona requires you to have a sex reassignment surgery to change the gender marker on your birth certificate. Um, New York state requires you to just check a box. Um, there's a couple of states like Tennessee, Oklahoma, Montana, that are currently trying to make it impossible or do not allow anybody to change their gender marker. So it's because we're this big country, <laughs> which uh, defined by a federalist system of government that like, uh, individual jurisdictions don't let people to change their uh, their sex classification on a, on a particular document. So it, it puts us in a kind of Kafka-esque web where you just don't know what's happening. Does it keep on changing? Hasn't there been a spate of transphobic legislation recently in a number of blue states? Uh, not so much in the blue state. Well, there's not so much in the blue states. There's been some. I think the transphobic legislation that has kind of made it the most into, into the blue states is um, – it's bans on um, uh, trans girls participating in um, in sports, um, and that's you know I keep track. I lost. I track meant of red states it. actually. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, the red states. Yeah. There's been a lot of there's been a lot of um, a, the the biggest uh, imp, uh, initiative has been to ban uh, mostly trans girls from playing on 
playing in sports. And that's in like, you know, all the typical red states. I think there's like 18 of them now, you know, Montana, Idaho, Utah, Arizona, Texas, all the what you sort of expect. Um, and so there's so we're in a different stage now because it used to be that like bureaucrats would decide what the policy would be for trans people. And they might not have had transgender people in mind in terms of how can we help this group or how can we harm this group? They're just thinking about like, well, if we if we change the definition of sex, what will be the ramifications for what we do? But now it's kind of been politicized and it's gone to the legislature, which is not a good thing in what we call the red states. Just as a reminder, what we call the red states, they're not all red. It's just that they are governed by Republicans. Um, but then you could have like, you know, 45 percent of the people could vote Democratic and, six, you know, 55 vote Republican. And then you have, a you know, a Republican legislature. Um, so there has been a really big um, anti-trans uh, push in the last few years. But again, talking about sports, uh, it's, this is not just uh, a, uh, a political divide issue. A colleague of mine here at WBAI asked about whether if LeBron James has a sex change operation, should he be allowed to play in the WNBA? Right. So the thing is, what what the 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 answer to that is like let the sport don't legislate that let the sports authorities figure that out you know so um like the international olympic um the international olympic committee has this framework that says okay each association for each sport will figure out a policy that follows these fundamental pr principles of inclusion fairness you know making sure there's non-discrimination so it's up to it's up to each sport to figure out like at what like can, you know, can people who are assigned male at birth compete? If so, like, when do they need to have transition? How much hormones do they have to be on? Like, the idea is, like, let the science decide and not have a, legislate, a legislature kind of making um, uh, – stepping in for the, for, the, uh, for the policy making that should be science-based. A really good example of this is in Utah, and Utah has a Republican governor, and it really – it just recently passed in March um, an anti – trans sports bill that the Republican governor, Stuart Cox, he actually vetoed and then they overrode his veto, but he gave his very moving veto speech, uh, a statement, and he pointed out there are 75,000 high school kids participating in high school sports in Utah. There are four trans kids playing sports. One of those is a trans girl. So this whole bill uh, was passed to stop one kid out of 75,000 from playing sports. So we just, you know, we don't really need legislatures kind of coming in and stopping middle schoolers from playing like intramural volleyball. Um, he also pointed out in his speech that like, you know, 86% of trans youth, you know, report feelings of wanting to commit suicide and 56 percent of trans youth, you know, attempt suicide. So like the problem is not the one trans girl in Utah trying to play sports. The problem is this like anti-trans messaging and rhetoric that tells these trans kids that they're not welcome in the world. But uh, a, a trans girl will have a bit of an advantage if we're talking about something that requires physical strength on the whole. On the other hand, uh, I could give you a hundred boys, and there will be a wide range of physical strength there as well. I mean, boys who self-identify as boys. Right, right. So, the, 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 I mean, the are, are we, how much are we really correcting here when it, it, the situation is so much more complicated, really? 
Well, I guess there's a couple of things. For, for one thing, you think you're like, what is what are sports for? And so sports are, have different purposes for a, a different places. So like middle school, elementary school, even high school, non-competitive sports. Like it's just to get out there and move your body around and get some complete full rounded education. When it comes to competitive sports, it's probably not best left to a Republican legislature. They're not really governing based on like the science of like who can compete. They're governing based on these ideas of like, a, someone assigned male at birth is always a man, but someone assigned male at birth who who's, was on hormone blockers and and then transitioned, um, um, uh, you know, gender affirming hormone therapy is not really going to have the the physiology to uh, to um, that LeBron James is. So, the, but the answer is like let the scientists and the data and the the policy be driven that way because right now we're in a situation where sports is just doing all this cultural work around the, around gender that it, it it's not really that it's not really pertain to the actual competition. On a psychological level, why do you think there's such resistance to people changing their sex designation? Shouldn't well, they be allowed to do it if they're just living a private life? Yeah, I mean, you'd think that a certain kind of libertarian narrative would resonate with people is like, does the government really need to tell you what gender you are? <laughs> you know, like, can't you just, just live in your gender and not be messed with because of that? But um, how much of it do you think is just uh, an extension of homophobia? I think it partly it's an extension of homophobia. And I think it's, um, you know, there's just so much going on with the right wing mobilization around gender. I think it's I do think it's connected to kind of reinstall a certain kind of gender hierarchy, because one of the things we see with the abortion decision in Dobbs and, you know, these moves in some states, to, you know, to move against contraception is that we're, they're trying to make women second class citizens again. Right. They're trying to make, you know, women, you know, have to carry, have, you know, forced pregnancy to term regardless of the health effects. And so that's about reinstalling the hierarchical different difference between men and women. But to have that hierarchy, you also have to have a strong distinction between men and women. Those, so they're also they're about bringing back this hierarchy, but also policing the line between men and women and making sure people can't cross it. So I think they're both parts of the same of the same project. And then we run into things like people complaining when somebody transgender goes into the, 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 the public toilet. Yeah, we see um, that. That's what, 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 right. what is the fear there? Well, the stated fear is that a transgender woman, the state of fear is that a transgender woman will like be uh, going, goes into the bathroom to commit sexual assault. That's the state of fear. We see that discourse because she's really a man. Because she's really a man, right? The thing is, like transgender people have been using bathrooms for a long time, using the bathrooms that, that go go along with our uh, express gender, um, and they've uh, you know it, it's 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 too bad that we have to spend time doing this, but they have compared like sexual assault rates in public restrooms compared the 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 rates in places that have passed non-discrimination legislation so people are allowed to use the restrooms associated with their gender identity and places they haven't and there's no difference so it's like it's not a problem it it's an example of a kind of extreme um right-wing um right-wing fear uh based on these ideas of biology and it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense because that same policy would have me walking into a woman's room and I don't think women would feel safe in a mm. women's room. I mean, maybe, maybe this is New York, maybe tons would, right. But 
it, me going into a women's room would be sort of a disjuncture, would make people maybe feel a little less safe. Well, you, a, you look very much, ma- you look manly. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> well, you do. So uh, this has been a part of your life for a long time. Have you seen major changes over the years? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So many changes. Have, have like, things just, improved or gotten worse? Oh, well, I think things have lo- things have improved. Things have proved, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, the odds, things were like really improving at a very good clip in terms of just people coming out. And as people come out as transgender, their friends and loved ones are like, oh, OK, that's not that's I thought that was weird. but I guess it's not so weird or that's fine. So I think things have improved a lot. Like, I've, you know, I've seen that just I've lived in 19. 19- the city since 1994, the policies here have changed and people's response to being transgender, like they just, a lot of folks don't even blink an eyelash. But what's happened the last five years is the Republicans have decided to kind of latch on to this issue. For a while, it looked like they were moving away from same-sex marriage because 70% of the public is supports same-sex marriage. And with the Obergefell decision in 2015, they decided to move away from same-sex marriage and they decided to latch on you know, transgender issues, um, though now it seems like they're still ambivalent about whether they're for or against same-sex marriage. Um, a lot of Republicans in Congress, you know, I feel a little uncomfortable with, with a new bill that would enshrine same-sex marriage rights in federal legislation. Well, North Carolina passed a law that would mandate people to use bathrooms that corresponded with the sex on their birth certificate. So how would that apply to you if you had to go to a bathroom in North Carolina? Yeah, it would. It would. What I would what, just do is I would. People, the women in the bathroom, be very upset when they saw you come in. Yes, they would, and I would probably just do. I would just probably walk into a men's room, and it wouldn't. It wouldn't really be a problem, and that's what. Uh, and because no one's at, no one's actually asking for birth certificates except in these kind of borderline cases. And one of the studies found like the people who are most harassed in bathrooms are women in women's bathrooms who are, you know, butch or gender nonconforming. They are the most harassed groups. Um, so it's a certain kind of combination of like homophobia and fear of gender nonconformity. But even even in even in um, North Carolina, that that bill was was rescinded eventually. But even in North Carolina, um, it's based on your birth certificate. So some people from are going to have states where they were allowed to change their birth certificate. Some people might not have ever gotten around to change their birth certificate. So you could have a trans woman with a birth certificate that says F on it um, using the women's room, room and another trans woman from like, you know, Kentucky uh, or Tennessee, I guess, who can, was never able to change her birth certificate using not being allowed to use the women's room. So it just as a policy matter, it doesn't really it doesn't make sense. But again, sometimes this. Well, would she have to go into a men's room? Wouldn't right, that cause a problem? <laughs> that's the thing. They're not suggesting they don't suggest that transgender women go to a men's room. Um, there's this law. Professor, I really like him. Um, Urinate in Bar- public? Right. Well, there's this law prof named Tobias Barrington Wolf, and he points out in this piece of the nation about, around the North Carolina uh, problem was that they're actually just not thinking about what transgender people are going to do. Like, we're just supposed to step away or disappear from public life if you can't use a bathroom, you know? So um, it's it's a problem. You're listening to Let It Locate at Large. On WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org.
conversation with Paisley Kerr. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. We'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much, and return to Paisley Curra, whose book Sex is as Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity, is published by New York University Press. He's a professor of political science and women's and gender studies at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center at CUNY, and the co-founder of TSQ, Transgender Studies Quarterly. What, uh, do a lot of people subscribe to your magazine? Well, it's a, you know, it's an academic journal. So everybody, a lot of people who uh, get academic journals kind of get them through their, their college library. But I do know from Duke University Press that uh, publishes it, that it's the, one of the most cited journals and their, their, their top journal. So in terms of its field, it's um, of, of journals, it does very well. It's not like, you know, Time Magazine. So... You uh, review a series of what sex is positions. Sex is attached permanently to the body at birth. Sex is genitals. Sex is gender identity. Sex is nothing but a proxy for gender, which is in itself an effect of power arrangements. Uh, Why do you think we're so confused? (laughs) Well, yeah, there's lots of different ways of looking at what sex is. Is it defined by the the genitals you have at birth is it defined by your chromosomes? It is defined by like your gender identity, your your sense of feeling, your deep deeply held sense of being male or female, or or not or neither. And everybody has a gender identity, but with trans people, our gender identity is not associated with our birth sex. So there's all these fights about what sex is, and there's the social constructionists and the the folks who want to talk about biology. But even when you get into biology, sex is not some unitary thing because some people can have genitals that are very different from what would one expect of their chromosomes. So it can be a kind of a mixed a mixed bag. And I was very interested as a, someone who's been doing gender studies for a long time and, and figuring out like, what is sex? How should we define it? And as an activist, I was interested in making sure the government had the right decision. And then after a while, I realized like, that's actually the wrong question. <laughs> the government is actually, once I was working, you know, on with these policymakers, I realized they were much more concerned with what sex does, like what effect a particular definition will have on its on its project. So back to the driver's license thing, they made driver's licenses based on, yeah, just, you know, you can come in and change your eventually change, you know, change your sex classification with with very little obstacles because they they want sex in that sense to be to, to refer or to reflect how people present themselves. But then when it came to marriage, sex served a very different function in, in terms of preventing um, same-sex same marriages. So I, I kind of – it was like a seven-year-long aha moment I had working on the, the New York City birth certificate policy and then doing some research and writing about it. And I realized like the advocates kept 
talking about here's the right definition of sex. It should be based on gender identity. And we tried out all these experts and, you know, evidence and define the proper definitions of sex and the bureaucrats, they were like almost the true Foucauldians. They were kind of thinking much more differently. Like, how does this definition change how we govern? So that made me realize if we want to kind of reform sex classification policies, we need to have a much deeper and thorough understanding of what states are doing. Don't prisons have very different rules than social service agencies? Absolutely. So prisons are like some of the most extreme versions of um, not recognizing the sex, you know, the gender identity of, of, of trans prisoners. So, so, so if they take somebody, a, a trans, a transgender uh, person who has uh, become a female and insist that that she is a male because she was born a male, um, aren't they causing all sorts of problems yeah so it, it's it becomes Especially a real if they problem share cells with 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 other male inmates yeah so what they what they generally do i mean and some states are better than others like new york is trying to be a little bit better and there's some legislation that is that hasn't passed that would fix things california is good vermont's good the states you know you would expect but what most correctional systems do is is house people according to their genitals so if you haven't had genital surgery and again a lot of trans people have haven't i mean it's technically covered under medicaid in most states uh and most private insurance cover it but still a lot of people haven't been able to avail themselves of that um then you're housed with um the, this your your birth sex and that can be that can be a problem uh for people so that's so prisons are the least likely to um to recognize people's gender identity and even in even in places that have good policies they still kind of leave it up to the the warden they'll say but you know you need to do what's best for the security of your prison so um it's a real problem aren't the difficulties transgender people face often related to other injustices like racism and sexism yeah, exactly. So in terms of sexism, the difficulties transgender people face, we see this now is like this misogynist moment. And the, well, they're always misogynist, but they're getting their act together, the Supreme Court, in terms of fulfilling um, some of the misogyny, misogynist policy preferences they've had. This misogynist moment is kind of pulling trans people along with it. Before, though, um, as the trans people were helped by feminism. So as the as second wave feminists and liberal feminists fought to kind of stop the state from treating men and women differently, that actually had unintentional but good effects on transgender people because if sex didn't matter so much in government's work, then it could lower the barriers sometimes for, for, for transgender people who want to change their sex classification. Um, and then in terms of in terms of uh, of race, yeah, we have to kind of look at how um, how this country is organized uh, in terms of a racial hierarchy, and we can look at that a little bit with respect to incarceration. Incarceration, because trans advocates are always saying, "Oh, if we just pass a non discrimination bill, if we just made it, we just made it possible for transgender people to to work and be productive citizens and hold jobs, then they wouldn't be incarcerated at such a higher rate." And one of the things I argue in the book is that. That kind of assumes that like prison is a good thing, but they're just accidentally catching the wrong people. And what we have to kind of interrogate is like why so many people are incarcerated. And that's partly because uh, we have a economic policy or many states have an economic policy that's 
in some sense, organized around incarceration in terms of locating prisons upstate and um, housing uh, or criminalizing so many activities that are like do, do, do not harm harm people. So we have to kind of connect all these are the transgender struggle with these other struggles. Well, although women aren't discriminated against the way they used to be, aren't there still social norms and the organization of the economy and different kinds of work where women suffer, especially women of color? Yeah, absolutely. So the thing about any kind of rights-based movement, like the transgender rights movement, is it, you know, at least in the progressive states, the blue states, there's non-discrimination laws, and there's beginning to be, you know, some semblance of equality before the law. But as we can see from the women's um, rights movement and the civil rights movement, that's not really enough. So uh, in terms of pay differential between men and women, pay differential between white women and black women, the the kind of service work and care work that is um, that is radically underpaid and carried out by by women and especially women of color, like legal reforms and changing the law doesn't is not enough to get to that so we have to have a kind of uh, do more broader things. So one of the things I suggest in the book is like, yes, non-discrimination laws, they are very good. Um, but the three policies that would help the most transgender people the most are, you know, a public national um, health care plan, um, a really serious, strong attack on income inequality, and a move towards decreasing our prison population, if not abolition. So those three policy things, which are very uh, grand but important, would help the most transgender people the most because the non-discrimination laws are limited. I mean, employers discriminate all the time, and they're very good at not writing down what that you know they're not they're not writing a memo saying, "Oh, I'm not going to hire this person because they're trans." because they're they're a woman, uh, but it still happens. So is that why you say that we may be asking the wrong questions altogether? Well, I just think we need to, I mean, I think it's important to have non-discrimination laws and, and everybody's sex classification should be recognized because that's, just, you know, you need to be able to, to move through society and to participate and be able to go to pro, uh, protests. But we also need to kind of look at how we're kind of implicated in these larger systems to make uh, uh, of, of the economy that that make sure that uh, some people have more than others. So, and I think we see that a lot with uh, the new generations of trans rights or transgender activists. They're much more radical. They sort of been caught up in the um, the Bernie generation. Some of them, and um, like many young people, they're much more open to socialism than previous generations. And I see that as a really positive development. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Professor Paisley Curra, who's written a book called Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity, published by New York University Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. You open your book with a court case in Brooklyn involving a woman who'd been menaced by a baseball bat wielding by baseball bat-wielding employees uh, at a Toys R Us store in Bensonhurst. What, what happened there? Why does that <laughs> Yeah, I tell that story because it just shows how much things have changed. So that story was like in the 90s, maybe around 2000. So it was actually three women, three trans women were in that Toys R Us, which is no longer in existence. And they were trying to buy presents for one of theirs, uh, one of the folks' uh, nieces. And they were in the they're looking for some some princess thing or some such thing. And the employees like literally pulled out a baseball bat and chased them out of the store. So that became a non-discrimination lawsuit. And the women won 
but the jury awarded them a dollar. So they thought they were discriminated against, but they're because of who they were, that discrimination didn't amount to much. And so 20 years later, first of all, Toys R Us doesn't exist. It's gone out of business. And second of all, I don't know if you've been in a Toys R Us. Not store, because but they, of this case. Not because of this case, not at all. Um, but I kind of am happy about that. But um, uh, if you, the Toy Stories, I don't know if you remember, but they used to have like these really, and maybe some still do, but these really aisles are all pink and aisles that were all blue. So boys toys and girls toys. And I think a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of retail, a lot of, a lot of the, um, you know, toy makers understand that like, you know, girls are going to play with boy toys and boys are going to play with, with girl toys. So we see some, we see a lot of movement, um, a lot of movement uh, in like in the non-discrimination area in the last 20 years. And we're seeing a lot more, uh, cases of girls playing sports that have been associated with boys, like baseball, softball, uh, basketball. So, uh, unfortunately, a, a basketball star is now in prison in, in Russia, but that a woman. But uh, those barriers have all the, have all changed. We're no longer surprised to see uh, girls who are very feminine playing. The, what we considered boys sports. Yeah, it's really exciting. And a lot of that came about because of Title IX, which prohibited sex discrimination in education. And some of its more important effects were in sports. And that's why it's so fascinating right now. The Republicans are like saying, oh, we can't have transgender people playing sports or trans girls can't play sports. We need to protect women's sports because they were very against Title IX. They're against the idea that like women's teams should be um, equal to to, to men's teams. Um, so it, it, there's a certain kind of irony there because when the tr the Republicans kind of make these anti-trans policy positions, they're acting like they're feminist, but but they're not. You've talked about the need for the trans community to challenge the larger asymmetries in gender relations. Why do you see the problems you've described as part of a broader issue involving gender? Yeah. So one of the things I think is great is that, as we talked about at the beginning, there's this proliferation of gender identities and different kinds of gender and ways of doing gender and names. And I have a 12 year old and, you know, I think like I know a few things about gender studies and transgender studies. And apparently I don't because <laughs> they're on TikTok and they're always telling me that you don't even know what that is. You've never heard of that word. So like I'm always getting schooled by my kid about all the different genders out there. And I think that is really great. And the more the more the better but i do worry that one thing that gets lost when we celebrate all this gender plural what i call gender pluralism which i am for is that we also need to like not forget that there's still this asymmetrical relationship between men and women like men get paid more we still live in a a culture that is um um this that discriminates that discriminates socially and culturally against women and, and, and those kinds of things. And sometimes I think the, 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 the focus on transgender pluralism and all the different genders, um, we also, we, it needs to kind of not uh, gloss over the fact that there's also still like just sexism and misogyny uh, governing the lives of women. We're running out of time, but uh, I was wondering if there are other things that you feel uh, we should discuss before we end this conversation. Yeah, so I think um, one of the things that really got me going on this book was, you know, maybe 20 years ago when we were working on a New York City 
human rights law, trying to get transgender people added to the law. And this trans woman testified to the New York City legislators, like this was back in 2001. She said, I do not suffer from gender dysphoria. I suffer from bureaucratic dysphoria. My ID does not match my appearance. And that's, you know, her testimony that day I was there kind of really got me thinking about like, what does it mean when the government like won't recognize your gender in terms of how you move through the world? Uh, so we, I never want to lose track of the the idea that like, it's really important for people to, you know, be recognized by the government in the gender that they live in. Uh- well, when you say government, of course, you're talking about various governments. This so is many country. governments, yeah. It's a country of thousands of, well, should we say thousands or many thousands of jurisdictions? Because it's not just federal law and state law, but it's also local laws and often county laws, city laws. Yeah, there's so many. Every agency can define what sex is. So another thing I would just kind of want to, as we close in this conversation, it's just like transphobia is bad. I'm against transphobia. But I also think we just remember, remember transphobia is like a description of a, a policy that harms trans people. But it's not an ex- explanation. Like we need to kind of dig deeper and figure out what's going on uh, in terms of why why things are happening. So, for example, you know, a couple of years ago in Texas, the electrical grid came went down in the winter and like 246 people died. Bad thing, bad public policy because they they done bad things to electric, electrical grid. And Ted um, Cruz was in Cancun at the time. And Ted Cruz was in Cancun, exactly. And Governor Abbott, his first, his legislative priority that year was it to fix the electrical grid, which they've still not fixed right. No, it was to pass. Uh, it was to pass a law prohibiting trans girls from playing on sports teams. So I think we always have to understand that transphobia. It's happening, but it often is a cover for for other things that are that are going on in terms of like distracting the population from like what our legislators should be actually working on. So we still have gender asymmetry, and although gender pluralism is becoming generally accepted, doesn't gender still structure a lot of people's lives in ways that are unjust? Yeah, absolutely, and we need to kind of. Um, I think that's why we need to kind of reinvigorate you know feminisms different kinds of feminisms in in this moment where abortion rights are no longer under attack but they are just gone and and you know will soon be gone in in half the states so we need to because in, in some ways like transgender issues and transphobia i think there's a reason why like so many corporations were very happy to like threaten to boycott north carolina and say we won't put up we won't move there we won't do business there unless you fix your bathroom policy because it doesn't fundamentally restructure society because transgender people are still a relatively small part of the population but they they don't do the same thing for the abortion rights movement they don't do the thing same things for reproductive justice there's like zero talk well maybe there's a teeny bit of talk but to zero effect basically of of um, them changing their policies around all the negative uh, abortion anti-abortion laws that are happening so i think we have to kind of come back around and and uh and focus more on uh, uh on abortion which the supreme court has said it's not about sex they have said the supreme court says you know, abortion is not protected by sex discrimination or the Equal Protection Clause does not protect abortion. This is what Alito said recently, because pregnant people are not always, you know, not all women get pregnant. So it's not a sex based classification. So we need to, um, you know, we need to come up with, you know, we need to change the story and, and show why how important it is that that people have the right to not carry forced pregnancies to term. My guest on today's show has been 
Paisley Kerr, professor of political science and women's and gender studies at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Center at CUNY. Uh, we've been talking about his book, Sexes as Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity from New York University Press. And Professor Kerr, thank you so much for being on our show. You've been a great Thank guest. you so much. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to my audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Keziah Glow, the executive producer of London Lopate at Large, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and you'd like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And you should check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are... uh, facing during these hard times just simple things like uh, problems of paying the rent or paying uh, the fee for our tower transmitter. So we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give, and then the number two, WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing, Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity, by Paisley Curra. So, so why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And we'll say, say thank you if you do that because we really it does help us to plan for the future. We'll say thank you with a number of perks, including a WBAI tote bag if, if you sign up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which a lot of public radios do, which it, but it allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on this show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in, in keeping this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive, and thriving with your tax-deductible support. Now, we're off tomorrow, but we hope that you can join us again next week, and I hope you have a great weekend. Thanks for listening.